Hey folks, we're back. It's a goodlifebabe.com. Jeff and Joel's Tales from New Orleans, broadcasting from Bonnaroo, episode 44. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Good Life Babe. Jeff and Joel's Tales from New Orleans uh, via Bonnaroo. Uh, this is day three for us, and third episode of the day. And we're really super pleased to have Patrick Clifford on as a guest. And let me just set it up by saying that you guys met Patrick at the Old Charlie's when I was had stepped away. Uh, yeah, on Wednesday. Right. On Wednesday. And you said, we met this awesome guy. We got to get him on the pod. And then we ran into you. And you would just have an exuberance and an enthusiasm. <laughs> you were, it was the other night. And you were just like, dude, you're the joy. Dude, we love you guys. Oh, Plus, what you, it's just an enthusiasm that's infectious, man. Well, thank I you. just wanted to say it's like, it's really nice to meet a human being that just is spreading joy. Well, you kind like of that. say that. I feel very blessed. I've lived a blessed life and hope it goes on for a long time. And it's great meeting you guys. And, you know, it's interesting how Old Charlie's was sort of the cultural hub when everybody got here before the fair. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> That's right. If someone told me, like, all these great things would happen in an Old Charlie's, I'll be like, nothing good happens in Old Charlie's. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's really... Except uh, when you leave. Exactly. No, but that's exactly what happens. You, all these people are waiting to get in, waiting to get their credentials, and they're the most interesting people around. Yeah. Hanging out at the bar, eating a burger. Well, did yeah. you meet Ike, the bartender up there? Yeah, I, I know Ike, but I didn't meet him. Then. He's outrageous. Ike's the man. Yeah. Ike's been doing this since year one. Yeah. He's yeah. the original crew. And he, I guess he road managed Switchfoot for a long, long time. Is that right? I yeah, yeah. I know that. Holy shit. Yeah. How many people have you met? Like, because you're a gregarious guy. Today like, or in just my like, life? In this, over, <laughs> over this bottom room, how many people have I gotta you met? I've got to tell you, that, you know, aside from the three of you rascals, I've met so many people, people from Nashville that I really didn't know that well, people, you know, that come up and mistakenly talk to somebody else, and the next thing we're all in conversation, somebody you're just talking to, and you, you know, hear some music or hear somebody say something or you see someone with a kid or with a person yeah. it, it, it's just remarkable and again I think that's quite honestly the beautiful thing about you know you know festivals in general whether it was a bagpipe festival my my parents used to take us to when we were kids oh, wow. my, my father and mother loved where was, where was that it was in New York we'd go up to Toronto all the time for this uh, giant gathering of pipe bands from all over the world. So you grew up in New York? I grew up in New York, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area, okay. and Washington DC area, college okay. in Ohio. So why the movie around? Did your parents... My father it? worked for the Atomic Energy Commission and for NASA. Oh, Jesus Christ. And he wasn't a scientist, he was a businessman. He was first generation um, Irish American kid, and my wow. mother as well. She had a little German in her. And uh, there were two kids from Queens. Uh, my father was the only person my mother ever dated in her life. Wow. Let alone married and, and lived with my father until him going off to heaven. We used to go to the Jazz Fest all the time. My, friend, my parents loved to go to New Orleans, but wow. we used to take, my father's name was Diamond Jim. Diamond and we'd Jim. take him down there all the time and he'd have the time of his life. Except the first time I took him, it was when they used to take the riverboat still out, you know, out to into the Mississippi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was the Neville brothers, and it was before I worked with the Nevilles and Bonnie Ray. Oh no, it was yeah, it was Nevilles and Bonnie. And it was about two thirty in the morning. And I looked at my father and said, Diamond Jim, you look tired. You should go back to the hotel. 
You called your and, dad time in Germany. Yeah, to to the you know from a from a very early age too, like you know when I was in elementary school, everybody did. Everybody called him Diamond Jim, and literally he looked at me. He gave me this look like I'd never seen, and he was a beautiful cat. I I love him madly, and I miss him madly. And he walked away. And the next day, we were at mother's having breakfast yeah. at like you know eleven thirty. Right. And I was hung over, and I'm going to pick up the orange juice. And my father <laughs> grabs my hand and brings it to the table at Mother's, and he looks at me and goes, Son, don't you ever tell me when to go home. <laughs> and back in the day, he'd come, and he'd be the last guy. He would close Benny's. I mean, the sun would be up, and oh, shit. we'd be there, and Diamond wow. Jim would be just talking to everybody, and all my friends that worked at different record companies and managers and agents, they loved him, and he was a, he loved the Jazz Fest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't believe that we're uh, not even five minutes into this podcast, and you mentioned Benny's. Oh. Because we talk about Benny's Bar a oh, lot, oh. you know. I mean, when we talk about Galactic and we talk about all these different bands that came right. out, Michael Ward, Re Michael Ward, and Reward, right? Exactly, and all these different musicians, right. and like, I mean, that was a classic. It joint. was amazing. It was the greatest hang at the end of the night. You know, we never get there until two, three o'clock in That's the morning. Right. That's right. And again, if you wanted to build a Benny's, if you were like, you know, in a subdivision in, in Cleveland and you wanted to build one, you'd find a decrepit building. You'd throw a hand grenade in, blow it up, <laughs> <laughs> make sure the toilets sort of worked, have a cooler for beer, That's right. and as much alcohol and as many sketchy people as possible. But it was an amazing place. And, you know, I remember the first time when I got to meet the Nevilles when I, you know, they brought me to, you know, the Fallon Street. And what, what year was this? This would have been like, you know, 86, 87 is when right. I really started to get to know them and spend time with them. And that's before we signed them at A&M and what would become the Yellow Moon record, which... How long you, sorry, to back up, how yeah. long had you been at A&M when you met the Nevilles? I had been at A&M only maybe, maybe less than a year. But I knew about them for years gone by, and I certainly knew about Fayou and the Bayou, which was on A&M because of Bette Midler. She brought that record, it was produced by a guy named Joel serious? Dorn, and Bette oh, Midler shit. brought that record to Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. So when I wanted to sign the Neville Brothers, everybody's like, nah, we've already put out Fayou and the Bayou, one of the greatest records they could ever make, and you know, who listens to them? You know, urban crowd doesn't listen to them the white people you know aren't listening you know really and i'm wow. like you guys are crazy and then we'd go see the shows and it was a point where they had made you know a number of records after fire in the bio but at this given time they just you could tell they had something to say something on their mind something in their heart something in their soul and the musicianship and the camaraderie and also the dynamic of them as brothers and all the things that they've dealt with as have so many um, African American, you know, musicians, as they've developed, you know, their careers in regards to either anything from racism to hate to being ripped off, the the sure. spirit of the Neville family is unbelievable. I guess it has but, to be. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember going to my friend Steve, who was the head of A and R, and I said, Steve, we gotta sign these guys, and he goes, I talked to Herb, that being Herb Albert and Jerry Moss, and. Mm -hmm. They're not into it. They don't want to do it. And I said, we have to do this. 
And at the same time, I knew Chris Blackwell from Island Records, who I revere, and I, I know a bit over my career, but also revere the man. Sure. He also wanted to sign it. And I'm like, this guy is not going to get the Neville Brothers. We're going to sign them. And literally, right before everybody, I guess, sort of acquiesced on the idea or supported me, I just happened to be in Miami seeing an act and I was in a big high-rise hotel overlooking like this Grand Prix in a swimming pool that was really great looking at the Atlantic Ocean. And I called Steve. I said, Steve, I'm not coming out of this hotel room until you guys let me sign the Nobel Prize and we make this record. <laughs> you were in a position of And so it. that was like on a Thursday. And little did he know that I was in a luxuri luxurious hotel, where, you know, watching a Grand Prix, looking at the ocean, going to the pool, and I said, I'm just not coming out until you let me do it. It's one of those A&R things where it's like, oh, I'll jump out of the window for this act. But I, right. I really felt it, and I really meant it. And it was finally Sunday night, and I, I called him. I said, Steve, I'm flying to Los Angeles tomorrow. And when Herb Albert and Jerry Moss pull into the gate of the A&M lot, which is the hallowed ground that Charlie Chaplin built at the turn of the 20th century in Hollywood off of La Brea and, and uh, Sunset. I said, when they see me chained to the gate, they're going to wonder, like, why is Patrick chained to the gate? What's that all about? And literally later that night, it was about midnight, Steve called me, goes, okay, they want you to fly to LA and talk about this, and, you know, they, we'll, we'll talk about it. And, and it all came together in a wonderful, wonderful way. And literally, I was able to get, you know, Daniel Lemoyne interested to, to see them. And, you know, again, after seeing U2 last night, you know, Daniel produced all those great, you know, records with Eno. And I really didn't know Daniel. I knew there was something really special about him. And a friend of mine, Jim Phelan, managed Daniel. And I had taken Daniel to see another band that I signed at A&M called The Innocence Mission. We took him to Philadelphia, and we're driving back and leaving Philly. And I, I said, Daniel, what do you think? He goes, you know what? I don't think I'm the right guy to produce these guys. But if I was going to produce them, this is how I would do it. So two hours later, he told me how he'd produce the record with these guys. I mean, it was so wow. unselfish and so giving and just the spirit of creativity and, and just generosity and, and, sure. and excitement. Because he loved the kids. He just thought, you know, I don't know if I'm the right guy. What were, what were some of the... If you the highlights of the advice that he gave you in terms of... Well, I mean, it, it was all, you know, it, it's hard to remember the minutiae of it, but it was all sure. very... That it was about getting performance and, 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 and making sure that Karen's voice was, you know, just omnipresent because her voice was angelic and right. just, you know, arrangements and sure. the way to capture it. Yep. And at the end of the drive, I said, Daniel, have you ever seen the Neville Brothers? And he goes, well, I know Mean Willie Green because we use them on Robbie Robinson's records. Right. And I said, mean well, Willie they're Green. playing at There's Irving. There's a connective tissue yeah. right there. I, right. So, yeah. I said, they're playing at Irving Plaza on Wednesday night. Will you come and see them? He goes, I'd love to. <laughs> and Daniel's French-Canadian. He's a, he's a really beautiful spirit. So literally... We go to Irving Plaza, and the band, I mean, they exploded. It was as, as, as cataclysmic as what was going on at Tipitina's or any of the you know, great clubs that they were playing, but certainly sure. at Tipitina's where sure. you go in and be like, wow. Exactly. Yeah. Where well, your brain would melt. You'd come, your hair would be standing up like Don King. Exactly. And literally, you know, Daniel, I said, I hope you had a great time. Thanks for coming. He goes, oh, I so enjoyed it. And I, it's so wonderful, and I, I look forward to talking to you. And I called him the next day, and this is before cell phones and 
internet and computers. Sure. Maybe computers were around. And I called his apartment, and he was living somewhere either in the East Village or West Village in New York, and there was no answer. The next day, on Friday, I called his, his apartment, and the phone was disconnected. So I called his manager, my friend Jim Phelan, and said, Jim, have you heard from Daniel? I mean, his phone's disconnected. Oh, no, Patrick, I have not spoken to Jim. I will find, I will find Daniel, and I will get back to you. <laughs> so literally two days later, Jim calls me up, and he goes, Patrick? I'm like, yes, it's me, Jim. I've, I've spoken to Daniel. I said, where is he? He goes, he has moved to New Orleans. He just picked up and moved. Based on seeing that show? That show and the group. And then he just, it was almost like his, you know, the, the record he put out, that Arcadia thing, is yes. obviously the travel of the French sure. Canadians down to Louisiana. Sure. So he was just like, It's a calling. Woo! It's a yeah. calling. I mean, he's That's a right. gypsy, you know, sure. at heart. And he's, a, he's just a beautiful, beautiful spirit. So... Wow. Next thing I was able to talk to Jim, his manager, and said, you know, they're going to let me sign him. Daniel should make this record. We don't have U2 money to, you know, for the production, but I can get this amount of money. Can we do this? And Daniel didn't even think. To, it was never about money. It was always about, I have to work with these guys. And the next thing, he moved all his gear down from New York, I think, probably where most of it was, with Malcolm Byrne and another fellow, Mark Howard. And we moved into an apartment building, the abandoned apartment building right next to the Columns Hotel. Yes. And oh, within wow. right. days, it looked like everybody had lived there for years. It was gris-gris hanging, and we, you know, everybody would eat together. Charles actually lived there, like, you know, just took one of the rooms, threw a mattress in and right, a dresser. Sure. And it was just a blessed, blessed experience, and the record came out remarkable. And the craziest thing about it was I flew to New Orleans to get the master from Daniel and to hear the playback. Sure. And it was the first time the dead were playing in New Orleans after 25 years after Garcia had gotten busted for drugs. And the Nevilles yes. were having a fish fry at this little fish I went, house. I went to that show, by the way. Which one? The, the dead. Okay, yeah, I didn't go yeah, to that show. I went to the fish fry the night before. And, you know, Art's there, Art Neville's <laughs> cooking, you know, yeah, red fish for Jerry Garcia and wavy gravy. And that's great. It was incredible. And there was just a handful of people. It was beautiful. And Daniel would come on, let's go back to the studio. And he played me the record, and, and it was just like, you know, it was just stunning. And then the next day, I flew to Nashville on the way to New, to New York. And a friend of mine, Craig Hayes, who was the Neville's attorney and still is, he still works with art for sure, he picked me up and goes, come on, we're going to go to Cowboy Jack Clement's house. Do you know who that guy is? No. You've got to Google. Cowboy Jack Clement is a renaissance man, music man, producer, bon vivant, raconteur, songwriter. And he had a place called Cowboy Jack's you know, recording spa and... You know, it was his house, but he recorded records. He recorded Johnny Cash, Charlie Pride. Wow. So we pull into the driveway on a Sunday night, and there's three guys smoking cigarettes out in the, in the, in the dark. And it was Bono, Larry Mullins, and Adam. And we said, hey, we just got this record that we just made with Daniel Lamar. Do you want to hear it? They're like, oh, we'd love to hear it. We'd love it. We'd go inside, and Cowboy was just an amazing guy. And we listened to it from top to bottom. And they were just like, nobody spoke. You know, they were just like, oh my God. You could just see it, you know? And there's like, and then 
I don't remember who it was. I think it was Bono. He goes, can we listen again? I'm like, of wow. course we can. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> and we listened to it again and came out and the sun was up. But it was a blessed experience. And, you know, again, those guys, every one of those the members of that family, I'm just honored and privileged that would they consider me a friend and would, have, would bring me into the house, you know, and just eat together. And I got to tell you something that, uh, so at that time, um, I wasn't old enough to go to Benny's. But I, you know, you probably could have gone. I probably could have gone to Benny's. But, um, so I was still in high school, but I was an avid reader of Rolling Stone magazine. Mm -hmm. And I remember when the Neville Brothers hit in Rolling Stone magazine, and they got these great, phenomenal reviews. And my friends and I were just talking and talking and talking about them when we went out and bought the record. Right. So it was your enthusiasm for that band <laughs> that introduced me to a band that I probably should have known about in right. my own hometown. And, uh, and, and we were like, what is this? What's going on with this? Because of course we had heard of some of the musicians and everything, but we're like, "Oh my God, we gotta mm -hmm. gotta check this out." So, you know, you uh, you you did that. Well, I was I was lucky <laughs> I to be in the right out. place at the right time and just be part of it and have a point of view and an opinion and a passion and convince other people and, and not convince, but to show people what was precious about. The Neville brothers, the music, the family, the culture, the city, the you know the the the, the state of Louisiana. Um, it was a really important you know cultural um, gift, I, you know, to be a part of yeah. for everybody, and it will last forever. That's and right. then I actually have the original artwork. The guy that did it is a guy named Tony Fitzpatrick who was. A, a, a piece of art that this guy got to do as a down and out club fighter in Chicago and a bartender and I think he was dealing with drugs and alcohol abuse and he just happened to be making these wood carvings and somebody at A&M who was the creative guy heard about him and saw it Wow. And we sent him to Louisiana, mm -hmm. and he met with them all, and he just read every book, and he couldn't understand why, you know, Cyril thought he was, oh, Cyril hates me, and, and Charles won't talk to me, and, and art, you know, arts, can't find art. and <laughs> can't, find, can't find art. <laughs> but years and years after the whole record, so I have the art. They gave me it's these three triptychs on three chalkboards, you know, kids' chalkboards. It's stunning. This fellow, Gil Friesen, who was the president, one day I just happened to be on the lot and he was walking off and Gil was a great art collector. And I'm like, well, I know where that's going. That's going to his house, you know? And he saw me and he goes, man, nobody deserves this more than you. And it was oh, just beautiful. Oh, and Tony's oh. seen it. It's an incredible oh, piece of great. art. So years later, I'm talking 20 years later, I'm in Nashville and I've got the artwork hanging in this office that I'm working in. And this guy comes, he goes, oh my God, that's Tony Fitzpatrick. I'm like, yeah, I know. He goes, I'll give you ten grand for that. I said, I've been giving you my son for ten grand. This is like a child of mine. And I ended up that night sending, a, going on his, you know, because I'd never met Tony, and he probably has no idea where that artwork is. And I sent him an email saying, Hi, Tony, it's Patrick Clifford. I have the Yellow Moon artwork. Love to talk to you. Best regards, Patrick. And 
the next, you know, that night I come back from being out and there's an email back from him. He goes, who are you? How did you get this? And I called him up the next day and we talked for two hours and literally he wanted to know how, you know, it fell into my hands and why I had it. And I explained why and, you know, the, all the background. And he goes, that piece changed my life. And we talked for two hours about what's happened in his life since doing that. And if you go Google this guy, I mean, his artwork is all around the world. And we just saw it. I'm saying he did a lot of album covers also for Steve Earle. Oh, and, wow. But to hear that, yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy had me. I cried. And I've, since life. then, I've gone to Chicago and we've searched him out. And we've met him, and he's a lovely, lovely man. And Great. But it's just, again, the connectivity of all this stuff. Exactly. And the work that Daniel did, and, and Mark, and, and Malcolm, and how it happened, and how this thing came, just, you know, this phoenix from the ashes, I could never explain it, and nobody could ever duplicate it. In fact, when we did the second record after that, which is called Brother's Keeper, Daniel's like, I can't do it. And that's when they had already started Kingsway down there, off at Esplanade. Yep, yeah, yeah, that's right. And Malcolm did the record, and I remember flying down to see him. I said, Malcolm, how's it going? He goes, oh, man, it'd be great if a Neville brother would come here. And he said, I said, what's going on? He goes, the only guy who comes is art. And Brothers Keeper really almost is almost like an art Neville sure. you know, really? record. I huh. mean, but it's the Neville's, and, and it's a, also a beautiful record and very, very important. Yeah, yeah, wow. That, that's, it's so amazing. And you had mentioned uh, also that you have, I mean, you just have a taste for Louisiana music in general, I would say, right? Well, again. You've worked with other artists from Louisiana. The guy that got me there was Ernie K. Doe. Right. And I knew about, you know, mother-in-law, but there were friends of ours in San Francisco. I was working at Epic Records, and this was before A&M, and I was living in Los Angeles, and there's some friends of ours, a guy named Scott Matthews, and his partner had a band called the Durocks. And his brother, would record, he lived in New Orleans, would record all the WWOZ, Ernie K. Doe. And they literally spliced it all together mm, mm. and made a rap song out of it before there was rap. Yeah. And yeah. we're like, this is yeah. awesome! Yeah. So, have, have, Joel, have you heard these? Uh, I have not. The, the, there are outtakes from when Ernie Cato was a DJ on WWOZ. Holy shit, I he, think was I also, he was also yeah. a DJ on WTUL for a while as, right. as well. Um, Michael Dominici, who's one of the, uh, yeah. well, you're right, exactly, who's a DJ there, uh, part-time, I think, these days. Michael is uh, kind of the keeper of uh, a lot of that material these right. days. But uh, So they made a rap song out yeah, of this. Yeah, it was, it was rudimentary, <laughs> but, it, but it was like, it was insane. It was right. like, you know, I have to get a copy of it. and, and you, I know I've got it somewhere, a friend of mine does. You guys have to hear it. It's have to hear that. classic. Yeah, yeah. Charity Hospital. <laughs> Excuse me. So I flew to New Orleans to meet him on a Sunday, and I didn't even know about the Jazz Fest. This would have been like 84. Mm-hmm. And I got there sure. on a Sunday, and I went to the tent, and it was much smaller than yeah, you know, back in 84. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And I'm like, what are all these tents in the raceway, and what's going on here? And I go into this little tented dressing room, and I meet Ernie K. Doe, and he goes, give me $20. I'm like, <laughs> okay, here's $20. What for? He goes, it's for my niece. And then he walked away, came back, and goes, give me $20. And I'm like, okay, I just gave you $20, but here's another $20. Who's that for? That's for my other niece. And he did his show, and he goes, I'll meet you at the hotel afterwards. And he came in, the first thing he asked me for was $20. <laughs> that sounds so like an indication. It sure does. We sadly yeah. didn't sign him. We never put that record out. Um, 
but that's what got me to New Orleans the first time. And then I spent a lot of time, obviously, in, in New Orleans with the Neville brothers. We worked with Zachary Richard also. So I got oh, up to sure. Scott and Lafayette. And so artist up there, Francis Pave, who's a dear, dear friend of mine who did a lot of great covers and big okay. music guy and C.C. Adcox, a friend. Oh, sure, right. And when we were at A&M, that's when John Hyde made Bring the Family, which was an amazing record, a labor of love, and he did that with Ry Cooter and Jim Keltner and, and uh, Nick Lowe. And he came and he played it for us, and we're like, we're going to put this out. you know. And we didn't have to A&R, he made the record. He goes, man, who am I going to get to play guitar on this? I mean, Ry Cooter's not going to go on the road. I said, you won't believe it. I was just in Brobridge, Louisiana the other night. I had dinner and I saw this guy named Sonny Landreth. Oh, oh wow. Lord. Come so on. I introduced Sonny to John Hyatt, and that was the band. The Goners were the band for, you know, for Hyatt for years, and I, the drummer is still with John to this day. And Sonny, obviously, is you know, one of the world's greatest guitar players and yeah. fantastic. That's guy. right. Yeah. That's right. But we also had Epic Records back in the day, worked with the Radiators. And right, that's got, right. And I worked with yeah. um, Tommy Malone and the Sub Dudes. Okay, great. Went yep. to the Mom's Ball one night to see the Radiators back in the you know, early 80s. One of the craziest things I ever saw in my whole life. That was one of my first experiences in New Orleans. Was <clears throat> I had moved to New Orleans in January of 94. I'm sorry, yeah, January of 94. And I went to the Mom's Ball that first Mardi Gras. And it was at one. It was at the old veterans, the VA place, and I just, I it just blew my mind. Right. I had no idea what I was looking at, mm -hmm. you know. And I was, you know, tripping on LSD or whatever. I hope Look, so. When uh, <laughs> you know, so I grew up in the burbs, <clears throat> outside of New Orleans. But uh, when I hit 19, I moved in the city. I was in Lafayette for a year before that. <clears throat> I told you this at O'Charlie's that. The people who lived, but Tommy Malone lived directly behind me. Okay, I lived yeah. on Conti, right by the cemeteries right. in, in Mid City, and right. and I had no idea who these people were, but I was just mesmerized by the fact that uh, these these brothers were constantly rehearsing, and so they were playing their stuff and they were doing harmonies and everything, and they had this big giant gray cat. Yeah, that I remember, and the cat used to just come over and go into my place, you know, and like walk around and stuff. And I have to go over there and be like, "Hey guys, you know, your cat's in my house. Is right. it cool?" Blah blah blah. So uh, they probably don't remember any of that, but I used to hear them. This was before, uh, really. I mean, the Radiators had had some success, right? But the Subdudes had had were not known, no, at the time at all, no. And uh, so they were doing all their rehearsals and everything. So literally, to your point, Joel. The first thing that happened to me when I moved into New Orleans sure. was an experience with uh, with Tommy Malone. They're remarkable people. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the shows that you know, and then we started going to the Jazz Fest every year, and literally one year I convinced Herb Albert and Jerry Moss and the guys I worked with, Steve and David Andley, who was. Remarkable AR guy said, Let's have an AR meeting in New Orleans and we'll get up, you know, one of the hotels. I think we did it at the Royal Orleans. And I said, We'll go there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, have meetings, and I'll get my friend Quint Davis and he'll give like a keynote address. And I'll go get Alan Toussaint and have him come and speak to mm -hmm. everybody. Right. And they're like, Okay. And then and we'll all go to the Jazz Fest. We brought people from the UK, people from New York. Los Angeles, Herb Albert, Jerry Moss, and literally on the the day before Alan was going to, and what a 
gem of a human being and gentleman. Literally, I go over to Sea Saint, and I'd never been there, and I was like, oh my God, what came out of this place and the songs and the sure. records. And Alan goes, are you here to interview me? I said, no, sir, I'm not. I'm, you're going to come tomorrow and speak to Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. He goes, oh, I love those guys. And, and they're A&R staff, and we'll just sit around and talk about music. He goes, you going to have a piano there? I said, yes, sir, I'm going to have a piano there. It'll be two and ten minutes before you walk in the door. And to his, his, his stature and to, his, to him, I never, ever thought of recording it and or videotaping it. Just thinking, this is, you know, a really hallowed moment. And also thinking, like, well, what do we have to jump through hoops-wise, you know, rights-wise? And he came the next morning, you know, Natalie attired, as always. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't have been any more, again, generous, kind, effervescent, you know, just full of life and, and passion. And he sat at the piano, and no, but we had no idea what he was going to do. And he did for an hour and a half. I refer to it as sort of a musical dissertation because he talked, he sang, he played piano, he, and for an hour and a half. And it wasn't about New Orleans, it wasn't about Louisiana, it was the history of music. Wow. It was insane. And I mean, afterwards, Herb Albert and Jerry Moss are holding each other and crying their You're eyes kidding. out. <laughs> it was just amazing. And, and, and so I think you can see all this interconnectivity that you're, that you're referring to uh, because uh, Herb Albert came out to the Jazz Fest and played this year. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So Good he was at, I think maybe, I don't know if that's a. He, man's in his early 80s, yeah. paints. He and his wife, you know, travel together and tour. The man, if Herb Albert or Jerry Moss walked through that door right now, I'd get up and I would genu genuflect to them for the things they gave me the opportunity to do and so many countless other people, both artists and executives. And it wasn't about, it was everybody just standing shoulder to shoulder about a culture, about artists, about, about being kind, gentle, responsible, accountable, polite, and and, and doing something that's important, you know, aside from entertaining people, it's, you know, our musical heritage and history of music, you know, to the world is one of the greatest gifts that comes out of the United States of America that's for, right. Absolutely. you know, decades, centuries. Yeah, you know. for sure. Well, and people don't necessarily know about the job that people like yourself do right. behind the scenes right. and how important it is for people to go out and call talent and how much effort and passion goes into right. uh, selling the idea of getting people to take on uh, the, the risk of signing an artist and, right. and, 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 and put, pushing them out into the world. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into the business? And well, how, how, I got into it in because one, I have a cousin of mine, Bobby Nako in Brooklyn Heights, who's a year or two older than I. And we were inseparable as kids, and when, when they were breaking us up at, at the end of the beach, you know, holiday, and he lived in Brooklyn Heights, I was in Pittsburgh at that time, we would cry, but he <laughs> would just always turn me on to music, always, mm -hmm. always, always. I remember being a kid and hearing Bob Dylan like in Rolling Stone for the first time on an AM radio at the beach and playing miniature golf, and he's telling me about the Four Tops, and I'm listening to what I thought was 
burned to death, but it was Bernadette by the Four Tops. I'm like, what are these guys singing about, you know? <laughs> and, and, and just, you know, so he oh, turned me on to all the greatest English music, you know, David Ruffin, you know, mm -hmm. it was just because a, a lot of also the best, you know, urban music, whether it be blues and, and, and you know, a lot of the stuff would go and be popular in England and come back to America, like in the you know, late 60s, early 70s. And when I went off to college, I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I thought I wanted to be a politician, and you know, John Kennedy was my hero. But I was playing music, I was working at a record store, we worked at the University of Dayton radio station, which was a big ass radio station, and like, 50,000 watts and you could hear it in different oh, wow. cities right, right, right. and it was a you know it's freeform you know FM radio and as long as we didn't swear on the radio nobody cared what we did so we just smoke pot and drink and play <laughs> records you know all night and day long it's like podcasts now yeah, yeah. Except, yeah. Except, yeah. We yeah. except we get to swear yeah yeah we can swear and okay. literally in the early 70s I read Clive Davis's first book and I, I, I had a sense of what was going on, you know, at you know Monterey Pop Festival and you know artists and sure. you know what was going on at the Beverly Hills Hotel with meetings with Sly and the Family Stone and this one and Janis Joplin. But he talked about all these other elements like marketing, sales, promotion. But it all came around talent and A and R. And to this day, Mr. Davis is also one of my mentors and somebody I always thank. And he's in his early 80s now. And I saw him about three or four months ago. And everything he wrote in that book is still true. It comes down to talent. It comes down to great talent. And then being around that and having the blessing to be around it. And then the ability to hopefully build a consensus of people to bring that to other people and hope that they like it. And, and again, when I got out of college, you know, I went back to Pittsburgh and I told my parents, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to be an A&R guy and I'm going to work in a record company. And my father collected jazz records, and he was into, a, like I said, bagpipe bands, but a lot of jazz, a lot of Irish folk music, okay. Clancy Brothers. Right, right. Um, huh. it, so there's always a lot of great music, and then we grew as a family, you know, what was going on in the late 60s and 70s, and pop music, and rock music, and, you know, what was happening in the cultural revolution of, of America. Sure, sure. But he understood exactly what A&R was, but he said, son, how are you going to get into the record business? We're not Jewish and we're not in the mob. <laughs> I said, well, what about Uncle Cosmo? And Cosmo Nako is Bobby right. Nako's father. Exactly. And he was a longshoreman. And I don't doubt that he was a bit of a wise guy. And my father said, you're right, good luck. And I went to New York and <laughs> took on about three years of the craziest jobs from selling uh, advertising to the Hasidic Jewish merchants on 47th Street as an Irish Catholic kid who does not speak, you know, hardly speaks English. <laughs> but I learned a lot to putting plants, you know, a year later being unemployed, collecting unemployment, working in a plant store and putting plants into Columbia Pictures and the Studio 54 and the Johnson & Johnson heiress and, you know, Calvin Klein's house and Andy Warhol's factory. and it's, it was amazing, and wow. every night we were out seeing jazz music in the clubs in the West Village, and going to CBGBs, and you know, um, you know, 
Mud Club and all the things that were happening there. And the rest of the time, we're in Studio 54, having mm -hmm. the time of our lives. Wow. And, okay, but I finally <laughs> went to work at a club called The Bottom Line. And I did it because uh, I wanted to meet executives and managers and agents and artists. And I did it for about six months. And I met this gentleman, Nat Weiss, who was my mentor, who was a... Uh, divorce attorney until he met Brian Epstein in the 60s and he became Brian's partner and also became the American manager of the Beatles fan club merchandise then the American manager of the Beatles and then he managed Brian Epstein as a manager for four weeks before he died and then huh. when he died the Beatles broke up and that's like I'm going back to practice divorce law Wow Peter Asher called him from from London and said you know Nat I found this young man he's from America I want you to be his lawyer and his the co-manager with me, and his name is James Taylor. So yeah. that's like unpack everything. We're back in the music business. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I went to work for Nat, and I got to do all these different things. But I got to sit around with incredible artists. You know, I got to meet a couple of Beatles and Rolling Stones and Cat Stevens and Bonnie Raitt and Peter Asher and and James Taylor and then John McLaughlin from the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yes, yeah, of course. And I just realized, you know, some of these people are really nice people. Some aren't that nice at all, but they all have one thing in common. They love what they do in their creativity, in their career. And if you do anything, and I'm going to swear, to fuck it up, yeah. they will kill you. <laughs> and so I learned a lot from that, and I got to be around a lot of stuff and a lot of great people and uh, worked with this kid, Steve Forbit, who's still a dear friend of mine who's from Meridian, Mississippi, wonderful artist, singer-songwriter. And after about three months, Steve was managed by a woman named Linda Stein, who was married to Seymour Stein, who started Sire Records, one of the greatest record men of all times, wow. and also another man I just revere. And if he walked through here, I would also just, you know, drop to my knee. And another guy named Danny Fields, who worked for Jack Holzman at Electra Records. And Danny was a publicist, but he was so much more than just that. He was just this tastemaker of downtown Manhattan culture and, you know, nightclubs, but really. You know, he signed the doors. He told he, he told Jeez. Jack Holtzman about Iggy Pop. You know, um, and and Jack Holtzman to this day talks about Danny. So Danny goes, "Oh, I saw these four boys last night. They were so beautiful and so cute, and the music is so cute and poppy and rock, and they wear these red leather outfits." And I'm like, "Yeah." And where are they playing? They said at Hurrahs. They played last night, and they're playing again tonight. And it was the Romantics. That's huh. the first band that I ever signed on my own. Really? Uh, yeah. And literally, there was a freak snowstorm in New York back in the days where there was no AccuWeather or computers or you know anybody. Right. But I lived five blocks from Haraz so on the Upper West there. Side, so I could get there. So you had the leg up. But Seymour Stein also lived over there, and he was there. <laughs> and there were eleven people, the band, a roadie, and a sound man, and. They were ridiculous, and it's the first time I ever heard that song, What I Like About You, that to this day when I hear it, it drives Dude. me crazy. Yeah. And after the show, I'm like, I'm gonna get these guys before Seymour gets to them. <laughs> and I should have been saying before Mr. Stein gets there. And, and, <laughs> and, and I go back and I said, guys, I'm Patrick Clifford. I work at Nimper Records for Nat Weiss, and we're part of CBS. And they're like, oh, yeah, really? And they're taking off these red leather suits that really weren't red leather, probably Naga hide because they had red <laughs> dye all over their bodies. <laughs> and they're still dear friends of mine, and they're still going at it. Oh, and great. literally, 
at the, uh, I said, I'm going to sign you guys to a record deal. I said, I don't really know what that means, but I'm going to sign you guys. <laughs> and we did. We made that record, and that record just came out great. And that was your first record? First record I ever made in my life. Other than one in college that really didn't count, but it wasn't anything that, I, I was working for somebody, and he goes, you go make a record with these guys. So right. I figured that out, but yeah. it wasn't something I really wanted to do. I was getting paid to do. And most of this, again, has never been about, you know, getting paid to do it. It's like be nice to make a living you know in anything but to have the opportunity to work with creative talented people and, and to make what truly is art as much as is entertainment and something that's representative of you know our culture and it's really special forever. yeah Last and it does forever. live forever it does and it's one of the things i learned early on you know and i tell artists all the time i said man you know if you're done with this record you better be done because this thing's going to live forever exactly okay we're going to live a you, you know, you finite life. This could live forever. You don't want to cringe at yeah. your death. I mean, like that. Yellow Moon, people will play that record decades from now. That's right. And just like seeing what we saw here with you 2 last night, that music is timeless, and it's also the soundtrack of people's lives. Sure. But the craziest thing was to see how it's the soundtrack to younger people's lives that, you know, I was around last night that were late teens, early 20s. and Cross-generational. And especially... You know, young yeah. girls to say how empowered they were. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's wow. great when there's music that speaks to people's hearts and souls and a consciousness, and also you know attacks and not attacks, but attaches itself to social issues of grand importance and in the hopes of you know resolve. I mean, last night was just an incredible affirmation of life seeing that show and to hear the thematic circumstances that are still so important to these four guys from Ireland that probably spend more time in America than they do in Ireland. Sure. But the history of, again, Ireland and America, just, you know, amazing. Mm. Exactly. And so fast forward to now, you, you are currently the VP of A&R for Disney Music in Nashville. Yes, I actually literally just left that position. And I'm really sort of unemployed, but you know, again, through all of this, whether you work someplace or not, you're just a, I, I refer to myself as a music executive. I refer to myself as a knucklehead A&R executive. <laughs> There'll be a way for me to find a way to do this and keep doing this because I love doing it. And the Disney experience was a good one for me for the most part, but it's such a Burbank-centric company that the management of the organization didn't, I don't think, really see the golden moment of what's going on, you know, in Nashville right now. It's an amazing, amazing right? time in that city yeah, on so many levels mm -hmm. and musically. And it's more than just, you know, the country music scene. Right. It's yeah. rock. It's pop. I mean, you got, you know, Justin yeah. Timberlake lives there, you know. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, huh? Kings of Leon, Paramore, you know, there's sure. just so much stuff. Robin sure. Hitchcock lives there. I see wow. him getting coffee every wow. day in East, you know, Nashville. Jill Scott. Jill Scott. Jill Scott. Wow. goes on and on and, and everybody comes to work there too the folks over here at uh, notes for notes I don't have you seen their installation over here no, Th I this is a, a not-for-profit company that they get kids into the recording studio mm -hmm. that's what they do and uh, the uh, I'm sorry tell me tell me who was it from notes for notes that we had Juliana on? Juliana I'm sorry yeah. Juliana was talking on the podcast about a, a young talent in Nashville, and she was just going on about that. A 12-year-old girl who's amazing. 
and uh, and is an up and coming artist. So uh, we've we've heard who, who, from who that they expect Nashville. to be like the next like, Justin Bieber type <laughs> right. person. I, right. I've been the right. uh, first time I went to Nashville is when I was working for Nat Weiss at Nemper Records in 1980, and I've been going there ever since. I moved there about 13 years ago from Austin, Texas, and I went sort of begrudgingly, thinking like there's not enough. You know, intelligentsia of music, and and I say that with the utmost respect, and I, I don't even know how to explain that other than the variety of music as opposed to country it was music. Kind of, yeah, right. Oh, no, that, and, makes, that makes total but, sense. But in the same breath, you know, Dylan and those guys went there in the '60s. The Beatles went there in the '60s. So many people were going there to use all these incredible musicians well, exactly. and songwriters. So exactly, it's always been there. It just wasn't as obvious of being in a city like Austin. Or Nash, you know, or right. New York, or right. Right. or you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco, sure. and now it's just exploded with singer songwriters and young artists, and and you know the songwriting community is world class. The studios, the the amount of bands that come there, the amount of people that have moved to Nashville in the last four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. So the sure. audience now for live music is there is bigger than ever before. Right. This festival is a big contributor to the growth of Nashville, right? Tennessee. You think so? Yeah, yeah. I, I think without a question. Yeah, and, I, and I'll just say that there's some, uh, you know, not to say this in a disparaging way, but there is some brain drain that from New Orleans. There, a lot of people like move out of New Orleans. No, I don't know how many, right. but I know of a few people that have moved from New Orleans. Jim McCormick is one. Sure, that's I'd love a notable one, singer songwriter from New Orleans. Who was, you know, making his way, uh, kind of at the Carrollton Station scene? I, w I yep. would say, you know, yep. and uh, made his way to Nashville and has penned, I don't know, two or three, I think, uh, big hits. Now. Yeah. One, uh, number one. And he, he's country. a gem of a guy, and you know, we met really his wife is. I was at, friends with at him. Aaron's wedding, and down there, which was great, and nice. and he's got, he's he's so smart, you know, he's got heart soul and he's got also a big brain and lots of things that he's taken in that go through this whole process and again how it all works i wish anybody really knew but he's a really monstrous talent you know yeah. and I, he teaches sure. also tulane i believe or right. loyola I, I, I think yeah loyola maybe right right yeah yeah it's amazing yeah but, and another buddy scott guyon who does art uh, up yeah. in Nashville as well who's done a lot of different things in fact he did an album cover for one of our records for my band in, right. in New Orleans but he's, he's amazing talent. there's more and more executives this moving from LA and New York there's more songwriters that move there from LA and especially from New York because they can't afford to it's live probably in New a better York. life quality of life and, and, and there's more just economical. there's a great you know there's an infrastructure there for it. it's a world-class infrastructure structure of record companies and publishing companies and mm -hmm. management companies exactly that everything doesn't have you know yep that yeah, and i've gone right. to like you know for years going to conferences in new orleans and everyone how come we don't have the record business here i'm like well you don't have the company there's not the infrastructure exactly you know? and not to say there weren't attorneys or managers or acts but it was more a cottage industry sure. than it is you know a, a robust industry i mean nashville that makes a lot of sense is a you know media city because of WSX and radio and Grand Old Opry for sure. over a hundred years. Yeah, sure, that's right. No, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Well, listen, um, we're about forty-five minutes in, and we keep these shows around forty-five to an hour. Um, right. What's your? What are you doing here at Bonnaroo? Besides, you just uh, you're you're here just to have fun. You're, I'm here to have fun. I'm here to meet people. 
to meet people like you guys, to have a moment like last night, you know, again, seeing you two. Um, I can't wait to see Chance the Rapper. I've never seen this kid. I think he's just monstrous in the totally. way that he's in complete totally. control of what he's doing. Yep. Um, Cage the Elephant, I met these kids when they were 15 and 16 Get years old. Wow. I think they're one of the most outrageous <laughs> rock bands on earth. I've met great people. I came here because, again, anytime I find myself in a transition, I always say to myself, the best thing to do is find things that you love. And what the, whether that's the spear or you guys, or an act, or a statue, good, right? or a photograph, sure. or a poem. Sure. Be better to yourself, and that's why I'm here to be better to myself. Yes. And treat you know, and carry myself like Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. And you know, and I say that because they built a magnificent culture. When you build a culture of connectivity with people, with responsibility and 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 politeness and 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 participation. Like when Herb and Jerry were inducted into the Naris Hall of Fame, the Grammy Hall of Fame, Herb said, this isn't about us, this isn't about Herb, it's not about me, it's about everybody and anybody who ever came here and showed up and participated. And that's what this is. There's participation of people. Yeah. There's so much more good in the world than there is bad. Exactly. And then that's what this that's what Bonnaroo represents. And it, and, it means good stuff. And music and culture yeah. represent that. And look, you know, I mean, art of all sorts. I don't know how y'all got too much into the backstory, but the reason that we're here is because of those type of relationships. Because right. we showed up to things that we cared about. Right. And we grew relationships. And we got to know like Rick Farman, who, yeah. who runs Superfly, working at a bar called Snake and Jake's with the generosity of spirit of a guy like Dave Clemens, who was on the podcast. Right. And we talked about things that we care about, and then suddenly we got phone calls from people who were like, we need to come on the podcast. Exactly. Which happened a few months back. Exactly. And we were like, well, okay. Well, people all it. want to participate in something where there's a great connectivity and a great conversation that... About good shit. Yeah, and goes on. And right. everybody that does this wants to learn. And 90% of this stuff is people showing up with the right attitude, a passion, a zeal, some experience, no experience, and saying, you know, I want to learn from this experience. And that's what this is all about. Yeah. And that's how you get better, you know? Yeah. I have a son who's 21, a daughter who's 18. I said, do things you want to do that you love to do. And, and it'll just, work out. And learn it and do it. I've been doing this for and 40 it'll years. work out. I wish someone would have told me that. I wish I wish someone would have said when I was 15, I didn't have this kind of type of person in my life, to say, just go work for free at something that you care yeah. about. Mentors. Just mentors. Do it. being around mentors. Exactly. Because then suddenly you become invaluable. Yeah. And then you become eventually the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Or whatever. Or you the know, smartest you, guy to get around other smarter people. Right. I mean, again, a few years ago, four years ago, I said this to a friend of mine who's a producer and writer, and, and he's from Alabama. He's a great, great guy, um, Drew Ramsey. I said, Drew, I'm going to be better to myself, find things I love, and carry myself like I'm Herb Albert and Jerry Moss. And then he goes, man, I like that plan. That sounds good, but <laughs> I'm going to do one other thing. And I said, what's that, Drew? He goes, I'm going to surround myself with the smartest, youngest people I can find and make sure my antiquity does not get in the way. <laughs> and that is it. Spencer, everybody. Producer Spencer, a millennial producer. But even, <laughs> even being here, there's been a, you know, watch people put things together. There's been a lot of moving parts and, you know, things breaking down and this and that. Right. 
and someone goes, you know, adapt and overcome. But it really comes from the Marines, which I believe is improvise, adapt, and overcome. And right. that's become the theme of the rest of my life out of this. Sure. And got three great new friends in you guys. Exactly. Got new friends in Nashville. Tony the Tiger. Tony the Tiger. a great cook. Shout out. Oh, yeah. Hello. Tony, how you doing? Hello, there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm this Tiger. She, she calls me Mr. Dynamite from the James Brown documentary. If you haven't seen that, watch that. Absolutely. And one of the greatest Absolutely. meetings I ever had in my whole life was James Brown came to my Get office fuck. when wow. I worked at Capitol Records Come on. for two Come on. hours. What? Two, two hours. hours. And what did you guys discuss? Well, this I'll make this really quick. So it was Tuesday. It was the, no, the Monday before Thanksgiving. And I'm in New York City in my office. The phone rings. The girl who worked for me was away, so I hit the, you know, you know the, uh, the button, you know. But, sure. but, but yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. when someone's on the loudspeaker or whatever. Right, right. And this guy goes, "Hi, Mr. Clifford. It's Mr. Friday calling from the new James Brown Corporation of America <laughs> in Macon, Georgia. And Mr. Brown wants me to come and play you new music that he's been working on. And this is right after James Brown had gotten out of jail. Okay. Oh Lord. So." Right. We're talking for a couple of minutes, and I think that's a joke. I think it's a friend of mine, someone pointed sure. a joke on me. So finally, Mr. Friday goes, now, Mr. Brown would love to say hello to you. And I'm like, of course he would. Sure, <laughs> put him on the phone. <laughs> Next thing, it's James Brown talking. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? I love your work, man. I love Capitol Records. We're going to change the world. I'm sending Mr. Friday up there to see you. I said, well, sir, Wednesday you know, Wednesday's the busiest travel day ever before Thanksgiving. Why do you do it? No, no, he's coming up Wednesday. He's going to see you. He's going to play you all these acts I'm working on. And I was just about to get off that phone. I said, Mr. Brown, can I ask you a question? He goes, what is it? I said, what are you having for Thanksgiving dinner? And there's this pregnant pause. And then all of a sudden, as if he was singing it to me, okay? He goes, turkey, black eyed peas, mashed potatoes. Green beans! Dude, we <laughs> have beans! We have to, we have to tell. Dude. We were, it's funny that you're telling the story because earlier today we were riffing on like what it would be like if James Brown, if was, James camping. Brown was camping. Oh, it'd be great. It was like, get your feet off the food. Exactly. So I finally say to him without even Too thinking hot. what I'm saying, I said, man, Mrs. Brown must be a heck of a cook. He was, she can cook on the store. And literally, he set up Mr. Friday. He played me three songs from three different acts on a radio cassette, a Radio Shack cassette. Uh, and they were, you know, good to bad, quite frankly, more towards the bad. And Moving then, towards bad. Two, so I said, goodbye, Mr. Friday. Have a nice Thanksgiving. Two months Mr. later, Mr. Friday, Friday calls up and goes, Mr. Mr. Brown is in town tomorrow, and he wants to come and meet you. So everybody in the building hears about this. I mean, people that don't even work in the record company, people come to work the next day and they're dressed in like tuxedos. Like, <laughs> like it's the mom's ball. <laughs> so Valerie hits, they're here. And I go outside and it's, and there's no James Brown, but Mr. Friday, three guys who are colonels, Colonel this guy, Colonel this guy, and the James Brown dancers, they come into my office, they play me the same three songs, same three acts, but now I got the James Brown dancers dancing in my office. <laughs> Thank you very much. And they're walking up. Mr. Friday goes, well, Mr. Brown would like to come see you today, you know, tomorrow. He wasn't feeling so good today. 
I'm like, sure, you know, Mr. Friday, and you know, I'm gonna be out really late tonight, see an axe, I'll be here after noon. If you wanna come by, just give a call. The next morning, I'm laying in my bed in Greenwich Village, it's a quarter to nine, my phone rings, and it's Valerie. She used to live in the Bronx, she'd get to work early. She goes, you better get, get your here down. now. I said, what's wrong? She goes, James Brown is sitting in your office. And I went up there, the same thing, James Brown dancers, the colonels, Mr. Friday, but James Brown now is going to sing to me, give me a lap dance while he is singing the songs to the three songs from the three acts and then stood in a window overlooking like uptown Manhattan pontificating about how James Brown was free and he was out of jail and he was going to change the world and we're going to do the, you know, we're going to do this together. And we're on the eighth floor and I look out the window and I see all these people pointing up looking at it. It's James Brown! It's James Brown! <laughs> he walked out of the door. They got into a limousine that literally had a hot tub in the trunk. <laughs> they drove away and I never saw James Brown ever again in my life. Oh my God. That is a great freaking story. What a great story. Well, I got a lot of stories I can tell you some other time, but I can't thank you guys enough and I, I applaud your passion, your zeal for this. and. Thank you for letting me riff with you guys on this, and I hope no, this is Thanks for coming on. Are you kidding? Look, we changed the rules about our podcast because of you. Well, I don't know what the rules were. Right, we didn't have really that uh, many, and i got to tell you what, we made one, uh -huh. and it's this. If we meet anybody who's as enthusiastic as you were, that they are automatically coming on the podcast, well, no matter what. And, and we all agreed on that yesterday. And, and we've had some really good guests on because of that. That's right. In the interim between you coming on right. and that decision. You're like, you, you're enthusiastic, you're on. Well, I have one rule in life. I can't know enough good and talented people, and that person's good at doing nothing. I want to find out, how did you get so good at that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I came down here. I, I knew I would learn stuff. I'm down here with my friend who owns a bus company, you know, one of the premier coach companies, and his right-hand man, Neville. And I didn't lift a finger, but I watched what these guys did, and it was like a military operation. Sure. No, it's amazing. I, that's one of the things that I love about this festival is watching the production. <coughs> it's um, amazing. Just across the board, yeah. from the staging to, to everything, security to credentials to well, everything. We were walking around it's, at 3.30 in the morning because we just wanted to get out and walk around, and we looked at those two giant towers that were there right. with all spots, and they were taking them down. And Neville was like, I thought they were here for the whole thing. I said, that's U2 stuff, you know? Yeah. Sure. Right. And exactly. they took it down, right. they packed it up, and they're in Miami tomorrow night. Exactly. That's one right. of my dearest friends well, is going to see him tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Now, this, this festival, folks, at Bonnery Music Festival is, production-wise, the uh, more intense, interesting uh, festival that I've ever been to, anything that I've ever seen. It is like a military operation, yeah. except everyone's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are super cool. No thank you so much for having us. Thank and thank you, you Patrick. Appreciate it. Such a pleasure. So, guys, we're going to wrap it up here, right? We're going to stay in touch. Yeah, we're going to be definitely going to stay in Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just... When you come to New Orleans, we're cuffed. We're Nashville. We're cuffed. And we're coming to New Orleans. And I got people down there I want you to meet. My friend Corky Jones, who was the lead singer in All Good. Oh, yes. He's a gem of a human being. Great. Great. Corky Jones. This is the beginning of a good friendship. Yeah. And when you come to Nashville, you have to come to our house and eat. Yes. Okay. All right. All yes. right. Tony Indeed. the Tiger. There we go. The Cook. Nice. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, Thanks a lot. We're going to wrap it up here with Patrick uh, on the It's a Good Life Bay podcast. Jeff and Joel's Tales from New Orleans. You guys tune in for the next one. Uh, we have 
the Preservation Hall jazz band possibly coming in in the next at, hour. Uh, in the next hour or so, yeah. and uh, we're going to talk to the folks from them. So click on that, and we will see you next time. It's a good life, babe. Jeff and Jill Sells from New Orleans and Bonnaroo.